Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse and violence. We advise caution for children under 13. As the lush forests and cool lakes of Vermont fade into the distance, we're adding some major miles to our odometer. This week, we're heading south towards Scottsboro, Alabama. We'll wind our way through Tennessee to get onto U.S. Route 72, doing our best to ignore the emails piling up in our inbox and the inevitable ping of yet another text message. Out on the open road, we'll leave behind our everyday routines, if only for a few days, to reconnect with the world around us. Verdant mountains and flowing creeks remind us that our mistakes back home don't have to define us. Under the big blue Alabama sky, it's hard not to feel hopeful. It's been the same for generations, and back in the early 80s, a man named Glenn Summerford needed hope. As he hiked through the Alabama woods, he searched for redemption from a life of sin. When he spoke to the Lord and prayed for forgiveness, a copperhead snake slithered out of the brush. What happened next changed Glenn's life forever, and his actions would hang over the community of Scottsboro for years to come. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is a special series from Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This summer, Cults is hitting the road. We're traveling from coast to coast to investigate the people and places that host the most notorious religious groups in the United States. So put on your shades, roll down the window, and kick up your feet as the rubber meets the road. Today, we're headed south to Scottsboro, Alabama to meet Glenn Summerford and the Pentecostal snake handlers of the Church of Jesus with signs following. In 1992, Glenn made headlines after he was arrested for attempted murder. His choice of weapon? A serpent. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. With a population of about 15,500, Scottsboro, Alabama is what most people think of as the quintessential Appalachian town. It's the kind of place where families have swapped recipes for generations, and secrets never stay hidden for long. If you visit today, you might go bass fishing at Lake Guntersville or get some pop at Payne's Soda Fountain. Swaths of red, white, and blue flap lazily in the breeze along the wooded roads. Make sure to keep an eye on the horizon for impressive views of the Appalachian mountain range. Scottsboro wasn't always known for its outdoor recreation or southern hospitality, though. Many years ago, the city made headlines for all the wrong reasons. In 1931, downtown Scottsboro played host to a criminal trial where two white women falsely accused a group of nine black boys of raping them on a freight train. The defendants were wrongfully convicted and just barely escaped execution. Four decades later, even after the remaining Jim Crow laws were done away with, the scars remained. In 1972, Jackson County native Glenn Summerford was just about out of hope. An amateur boxer in his late 20s, Glenn, a few years earlier, had received an 18-month sentence in prison for burglary. On top of that, he was mourning the recent death of one of his six children. Glenn coped by staying out late gambling, drinking, and cheating on his wife. One of his girlfriends was a woman named Darlene Collins. To her, it seemed like love at first sight. Darlene had a rough-and-tumble attitude to match Glenn's and a few notches on her own criminal record. Together, they were a force to be reckoned with. Glenn was smitten. In 1975, he separated from his wife and tied the knot with Darlene. But even with the new start, things were messy. Though Glenn put up a tough front, he knew he needed to be a better man, a better husband, a better father. So when Darlene got pregnant with their son Marty around 1978, Glenn decided to, quote, start living right. By the time the baby was born, he'd already fallen off the wagon. But a few years later, he tried again to be a better man. And in Scottsboro, Alabama, that meant going to church. He and Darlene attended several congregations in short spurts, but couldn't seem to stick with it. Then, sometime around 1982, a few of his buddies came by the house. They said God had sent them, and the Lord wanted Glenn to pray. 
He might have had his doubts at first, but who is he to say no to God? The group got together more after that to talk about God, and soon Glenn and Darlene had developed their own regular prayer practice. Glenn worshipped diligently, but at some point he hit a wall. He needed God's help to reveal the true meaning of the Bible to him. And to his surprise, the Lord answered his prayers. He told Glenn to fast for 30 full days with no food or water, a certifiably impossible feat. Nevertheless, Glenn claimed he followed God's instructions and emerged from his fast a changed man. But still, he felt he had so much more to learn. Glenn said God then instructed him to keep fasting while he worshipped. This time, the Lord was kind enough to let him drink water. By the end of this months-long process, Glenn knew the Bible like the back of his hand. He says the Lord told him, I'm going to send you out where I want you to go. So when his friends invited Glenn and Darlene to a local Bible study, Glenn readily agreed to go. On the first night the couple attended, the group gathered in the living room. One of the attendees, who we'll call Tommy, walked around the group and placed his hands on each member until they felt the power of the Holy Spirit. Glenn desperately wanted to feel some confirmation of his connection to the Lord, but God seemed unusually quiet. Then, as Tommy approached, the Lord spoke. He told Glenn he could cast the devil out of Tommy. Sure enough, the second Tommy touched Glenn, he suddenly fell to the ground and started convulsing, screaming, and cursing. Glenn remembered God's words and knelt down beside Tommy. Instinctually, he held Tommy's hand and exorcised the devil from him. The room was stunned, and Glenn came home that night with a feeling of newfound purpose. By that point, he says he had stopped drinking and left his destructive habits in the past. He and Darlene started going to church regularly. Glenn was determined not to backslide. He instituted a strict prayer regimen. One of his favorite places to commune with God was near his house on Sand Mountain a vast plateau at the southern edge of the Appalachian Range. There, Glenn could let go of everything and feel close to God. He walked the trails often, enjoying the nature. On one early morning walk, the sun shone on a venomous copperhead snake as it slithered across the path in front of him. At that moment, a Bible passage from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, surely came to Glenn. Verses 17 and 18 read, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. One of these very signs lay in front of him. This was his chance to show his commitment to the Lord. So he started praying. Glenn bent down low enough to pick the copperhead up. There was so much riding on what happened next, and it was all up to the Lord. If he failed, the consequences could be deadly. So he took a deep breath and tried again. This time, he curled his fingers under the creature and lifted it towards him. The snake didn't bite him. The feeling was amazing. Glenn knew the Lord allowed him to safely pick up the serpent. He praised the Almighty. Hearing the commotion not far from the house, Darlene dashed outside with a hoe in her hand. 
When she saw the serpent, she rushed to pin it down, but Glenn stopped her. He explained the momentous experience. Darlene looked at the snake in awe. She threw down the hoe and started praying. When she felt the presence of the Holy Ghost, she couldn't contain herself. She knelt down and scooped up the snake, too. For them, the experience confirmed that they were on the right spiritual path. Otherwise, they reasoned, the snake would have struck. Moving forward, the pair developed an unshakable faith in God, and they believed that continuing to handle snakes would only strengthen their divine connection. Darlene and Glenn were raring to share their discovery with the people of Scottsboro, even though one wrong move could spell disaster. Coming up, Glenn gains a following. British history may be rich with impact, but it's also rife with mysteries. In UK Unknown, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we attempt to answer some of the Isle's most elusive questions. Who was Jack the Ripper? Were secret groups controlling the empire? And who or what created Stonehenge? Royalty, literature, aliens, war. UK Unknown takes a closer look at Parkart's most mystifying episodes to separate hoax from history and absolute rubbish from the bloody baffling. Sit back, grab a cuppa, and catch a new episode of UK Unknown every Friday. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the early 1980s, Glenn and Darlene Summerford's lives were changed forever when they survived handling a venomous copperhead. From that moment on, the couple started collecting and keeping serpents in a shed behind their home. Every night, they prayed together and practiced handling the snakes. He and Darlene honed their skills, becoming familiar with the serpents they'd collected. Glenn's transcendent experience on Sand Mountain, combined with the exorcism he'd supposedly performed, convinced him that God had chosen him for something greater. He and Darlene started regularly attending services at Mink Creek Holiness Church, and Glenn became close with the pastor, Brother Carl Hazewell. The pastor had heard about Glenn's exorcism and believed he was touched by God, and it didn't take long for others to buy in. According to a local Scottsboro woman named Dorothy Dial, Glenn performed countless miracles for her and her family. These included healing her son's broken jaw, fixing her cousin's broken hand, and getting rid of a sinus infection. Brother Hazewell took note of Glenn's abilities and staunch devotion to the church. Glenn accepted his offer to take on the role of assistant pastor. He wasn't an assistant for long, though. Not long after he started, Brother Hazewell had a sudden heart attack and died. With his passing, Glenn inherited the role of pastor and a few dozen followers. He had some big shoes to fill, but he rose to the occasion. He gave passionate sermons, encouraging his congregants to live according to the Bible. If he could do it after everything he'd been through, 
then so could they. But even as Glenn found success, in the early 1980s, he realized something was missing from the church. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibited discrimination based on race. But as William Bynum, the former managing editor of the local paper The Daily Sentinel, said, Walking into Jackson County was akin to stepping back 50 years in a time machine. It wasn't until the 1980s that Glenn decided, when he started preaching at Mink Creek, to integrate the services. And while many congregants wanted to move forward, not everyone was so eager. After Glenn allowed black members to attend his services, some people's opinions soured. Things rapidly escalated from there, and eventually, Glenn said, someone burned the chapel to the ground. Still, Glenn wasn't discouraged. As God's servant, he had a duty to preach to everyone. So he buckled down and set up a new church in an old store building off Highway 72, not far away. Over time, his following grew even bigger, and he started to handle live snakes while preaching. Glenn brought boxes filled with them to services. If he felt the spirit move him during a sermon, he took out one or several at a time. As Dorothy Dial told it, she once watched Glenn wrap a five-foot-long rattlesnake around his neck like a scarf and continued to preach as usual. Although snake handling in a church was rare, it wasn't a new phenomenon. It was popularized in Appalachia during the early 1900s when George Hensley, a Pentecostal preacher, took up a rattlesnake during Sunday services. Once again, the practice was on the rise in Scottsboro. In some ways, the region was arguably frozen in time, and some of its residents were facing the same issues their parents had encountered before them. According to the 1980 census, Jackson County, where Scottsboro's located, had a poverty rate of nearly 16%. Most who attended Glenn's church were strapped for cash, and in many ways, his brand of Pentecostalism brought a renewed sense of hope to his followers. Through his example, they saw that piety could be as simple as communing with the earth and God's creatures. In the hill country of Appalachia, this was an appealing message, and handling snakes wasn't the only way Glenn showed his commitment to the Almighty. One night in the early 1980s, Glenn's service was in full swing. Someone strummed the guitar while the congregation clapped along and sang. Glenn looked out at the packed room and lost himself in the excitement. He glanced down at the pulpit, where a glass jar filled with an opaque white liquid sat. Presumably, he heard the Lord speak to him, urging him to drink from the jar. He ingested strychnine, a highly toxic chemical used to kill small rodents like rats. According to Glenn's interpretation of the Gospel of Mark, drinking poison was one of the five signs that followers of Jesus Christ should adhere to. But as the liquid entered his body, Glenn felt the muscles of his face tingle. He held himself together for the rest of the service, but by the time he and Darlene got home, he felt funny. Before long, his foot went numb and the muscles in his face spasmed. He started convulsing and his limbs were temporarily paralyzed. He tried calling for Darlene, but no sound came out. All he could do was close his eyes and think of God. Slowly, he regained enough feeling in his body to pray. As the night progressed, his limbs relaxed and he could walk around the house. By morning, he said he'd totally recovered. To Glenn, the experience was a reminder. Darlene was wonderful, but only Jesus could save him. Every time he survived a brush with death, it proved to his followers that Glenn was truly protected. To them, he seemed almost immortal, and he never stopped testing the Lord's mercy. 
During one evening service, he placed about 45 serpents on the pulpit at once. As Glenn sang out in praise, a rattlesnake delicately coiled its body, lifting its head above the sea of scales and trained its eyes on him. At that moment, Glenn heard the Lord tell him to pick up the snake with his left hand and put it back in the box, but for some reason he reached out his right instead. In the blink of an eye, the rattler lunged forward and sank its fangs into him. Then, all of a sudden, a cottonmouth struck him on the palm. Glenn grabbed the snake and threw it in the box, but his hand was already burning. Instead of calling an ambulance, he started praying. He felt he had to atone for reaching out with his right hand instead of his left. But of course, the Lord forgave him. Glenn felt a sense of protection wash over him, and he knew what he had to do next. He steadied his breath and reached back in the container. The congregation fell silent. When they looked on, a deadly Mojave lay still in Glenn's palms. It seemed he really was indestructible after all. Not even a venomous bite could take him down. But that might not have been so true. About 10 minutes later, Glenn's vision went blurry and the world went dark. He faded in and out of consciousness for the next seven days. Friends and family set him up in his living room, praying for him and dressing his wounds. Glenn's shoulder had swelled to the size of a football, and the flesh on his arms was mangled and tender. On the seventh day, Glenn awoke as a wave of warm light washed over his body. He felt the Lord had entered the room. As he later recalled, the next thing he knew, he was up and running out in the yard, praising God. He returned to the altar the next church night. He knew that he'd only been bitten because he disobeyed God. But God didn't let him die. The Heavenly Father had taught him and his followers a lesson. As long as they remained faithful, the Lord would protect them no matter what. The reality was that Glenn wasn't handling just any old snakes, though. The ones at his church are used to being touched by humans. But that didn't matter to Glenn's followers. They saw an ex-convict who'd completely turned his life around thanks to his devotion to God. It was an appealing message that quickly attracted more converts. When he really started to gain steam, Glenn decided it was time to move his congregation somewhere bigger. He purchased an old grocery store outside of Scottsboro and remodeled it with the help of his friends and followers. They kept the linoleum floors and installed about a dozen pews. Glenn hung a simple wood sign on the outside. It read, The Church of Jesus with Signs Following. By the late 1980s, he and Darlene were holding services three nights a week. The small building burst at the seams as dozens of attendees came to watch Glenn speak. The number swelled to close to 100 when he hosted revivals outside the chapel. There, Glenn's congregants huddled under a large tent while he stood at the makeshift pulpit. He kicked things off with a short sermon before the band got started. At the height of all the excitement, Glenn reached into one of the many snake-filled containers on the ground. Then, depending on what the Lord sent to him that day, Glenn brought out the serpents. He held the snakes high above his head, his prayers mingling with the song of his followers. When the Holy Ghost moved through him, he called on his congregants to come closer. One by one, they gingerly held the slithering creatures and prayed to the Almighty. Sometimes congregants spoke in tongues as they handled the snakes. Other times they performed exorcisms. 
Glenn's son, Marty, said that he once witnessed his father physically extract the devil out of a man. He claimed the devil, quote, came out like a water dog and slithered into a corner. Glenn's followers adored him. He was a local who truly understood what it meant to struggle and turn his life around. Most importantly, he accepted them for who they were, warts and all. He spoke in a plain way so that everyone could understand and never demanded they wear their Sunday best. In fact, many women dressed as plainly as possible, in long dresses with loose hair and no jewelry or makeup. But as time went on, some grew to resent Glenn's way of doing things. One person in particular was getting pretty tired of him. His wife, Darlene, wanted out. Coming up, Darlene acts out and faces Glenn's wrath. Now back to the story. By 1990, it seemed like Glenn Summerford's Church of Jesus with Signs Following was on its way to small-town greatness. That year, the church reportedly had hundreds of followers from all over Jackson County, Alabama. With Glenn in his 40s and Darlene approaching her mid-30s, the two had gone from partying to piety. They dedicated their lives to growing the congregation, but trouble brewed under the surface. While Glenn appeared to be deeply devoted to the Lord and his followers, he wasn't as committed to Darlene. Sometime in the late 1980s, she started questioning the life they'd created together. Darlene had no doubt in the power of Jesus Christ, but she wasn't sure she wanted every waking second to revolve around him. She started to get antsy and told Glenn she wanted him to quit preaching so they could run away together. To Glenn, that simply wasn't an option. He had people counting on him. He couldn't abandon his congregation. Even his wife came second to God. Darlene was crushed. She had no other outlets besides the church. If Glenn didn't want to leave, that meant she had to stay too. It wasn't easy to hide her feelings. She and Glenn started getting into regular arguments about anything and everything. Ever since he'd become a man of God, Glenn claimed he had cut his drinking. As their marriage deteriorated, however, he turned back to the bottle to cope. That only made things worse. Since his early days as an amateur boxer, Glenn had violent tendencies that got worse when he drank. Darlene claimed he continually abused her during their relationship. Darlene let his behavior slide for long enough, but as their fights escalated, she told him she wanted a divorce. Glenn wouldn't let it stand. He threatened to get custody of their 12-year-old son, Marty. The thought of losing the boy crushed Darlene. For his sake, she decided to tough it out. In the fall of 1991, she desperately needed an escape. Sometime in September, Glenn was out in the woods hunting squirrels with his two dogs when he heard a car pull up near his house. He corralled the dogs and made his way back to the driveway. According to Glenn, he saw Darlene walk through the front door with a local preacher at her side. When he later confronted her, assuming infidelity, Darlene denied the preacher ever came over at all. Shortly afterward, Glenn went to the church and told the congregation that his assistant pastor would be taking over for the week. He had some family business to attend to. On October 2nd, Glenn made Darlene go pick up some money from one of Glenn's closest friends, a man named J.L. Lewis. There, Darlene claimed J.L. kissed her. When she returned home, shaken, she told Glenn about it. She didn't want him to think she had anything to hide. Instead of thanking her for her honesty, she says Glenn shouted at her and vowed to beat up J.L. 
The following day, after drinking enough to be visibly drunk, he set out to JL's office with Darlene in tow. There, he grabbed a metal chain from the engine of his car and hit JL with it. After knocking the living daylights out of him, Glenn felt ready to have a discussion. Darlene said he confronted JL about the kiss, but the man denied it ever happened. Darlene said Glenn didn't believe him for a second, but he started to worry JL would call the cops. He grabbed Darlene and headed home. The next day, Darlene claimed he was angrier than ever and berated Darlene about JL. She insisted the situation was out of her control, but Glenn didn't want to hear it. He threatened to shoot her right there and went to retrieve a gun. Terrified, Darlene ran outside and scurried up a hill near their house. When she looked back, she saw their son, Marty, with his bow and arrow. He drew it back and fired one at Glenn. An arrow whizzed past his father, narrowly missing. The incident snapped the couple out of it. Glenn and Darlene knew they needed to hash things out, but they didn't want Marty to witness them fighting. They sent him to stay with a relative for the next few days. With the boy out of the house, the couple continued arguing while Glenn kept drinking, according to Darlene. He also went back to accusing Darlene of cheating. It wasn't just the other pastor or JL. Glenn claimed he knew she was flirting with any man that looked her way. Darlene said she tried to shut down the accusations, but it felt like she was talking to a brick wall. Then in the middle of yelling and cursing, Glenn suddenly got quiet and glared at his wife. He said he didn't want to live with her anymore. But he didn't want anyone else to be with her either. At that moment, Glenn's brother called the house. He hadn't heard from them in a few days and wanted to make sure everything was okay. Glenn assured his brother they were fine. They'd been busy praying. In fact, they were just about to handle some snakes. After hanging up, Darlene said Glenn turned to her, grabbed her by the hair, then reached for a weapon. He dragged her out to the snake shed at gunpoint. From there, he made his wife take the lid off one of the snake containers and pushed her toward it. Darlene tried pulling away, but Glenn just tightened his grip. Still holding onto her hair, he forced her head over the open container and demanded she pick up one of the serpents. He may have believed that God would protect her from harm if she was really telling the truth about being faithful, but as Darlene tells it, he was trying to kill her from the start. She said she begged him to stop. The snakes had become agitated by the yelling, and Darlene knew that despite what Glenn said, there was no way they'd calm down. Yet if she didn't reach inside, one of the serpents might strike her in the face. So she took a shaky breath and reached her trembling hand inside. Almost instantly, a western diamondback struck her left thumb. Darlene cried out in pain as Glenn looked on. While she nursed her finger, Glenn sauntered over to another container with two huge rattlesnakes inside. He offered Darlene a compromise. If she picked up one of the snakes without getting bitten, he'd let her live. There was only so much Darlene could do. She prayed until Glenn got tired of waiting. Then, with tears streaming down her face... Darlene reached in. The hefty rattler remained calm as she lifted it a few inches above the cage. Glenn looked annoyed, but he'd made a promise. Darlene didn't have long to celebrate. 
Her throbbing thumb reminded her that venom was coursing through her veins. She told Glenn how much pain she was in, but said he just ignored her. On the short walk back to the house, she had to stop every few feet to throw up and rest. She finally managed to make it to the porch, but fainted before she could get to the front door. Glenn roused her by kicking her in the side. Apparently, God had spoken to him while she was out. He told him she would live. For now. Darlene made it inside and fell into a fitful sleep on the couch. She woke up the next morning groggy and confused. Her vision was cloudy as she looked down at her hand and gasped. It was swollen and tomato red. Before long, the searing pain returned. In a panicked voice, Darlene told Glenn she needed to go to the hospital, but he just ignored her and told her to get ready instead. They were going to the video store. Afraid to anger him any further, Darlene said she did as he ordered. When they pulled up to Lakeside Grocery and Video, Glenn told Darlene he'd take her to the hospital after she returned some tapes, but she better keep quiet about her injury. Darlene darted in and out of the store. The thought of getting help propelled her forward. When she got back to the car, she said Glenn drove them to the liquor store for more vodka. She said that she begged him to take her to the hospital, but that he headed home instead. Exhausted and delirious, Darlene passed out on the couch as soon as they got home. Next thing she knew, she felt a warm liquid flush over her. According to the documentary Alabama Snake, she said Glenn urinated on her. And now that she was awake, he had some news. He was going to bring her to the shed again to finish the job. Cursing Darlene, he grabbed his gun and dragged her out back to the shed. He grabbed a pipe and stood over the cage with the rattler that had already bitten Darlene. Glenn struck the snake repeatedly until Darlene could hear its rattle loud and clear. Then he told her to reach in and grab it. At that point, Darlene had no more fight left in her. She stuck her hands inside. As soon as she did, the snake struck on the back of her left hand, the same hand that had already been bitten. Darlene threw up almost instantly. Her breath came in short spurts and her hand burned. She could barely walk on her own. With Glenn pushing her along, Darlene staggered back inside the house. She weaved in and out of consciousness. She says she thought for sure she was dying. Yet at some point, according to the documentary Alabama Snake, she says she mustered enough strength to hand Glenn a fifth of vodka. He took a swig, then laid down on the couch and told Darlene that if she moved, he'd shoot her. A few moments later, he passed out, the pistol beside him. Darlene saw her opportunity, and she said she crawled her way to the kitchen. Using only her right hand, she picked up the phone and dialed her sister, who called an ambulance. Miraculously, she survived the trip to the hospital. She lost the top part of a finger, but was otherwise unscathed. A few days later, the authorities apprehended Glenn. The trial ended up lasting just two and a half days. In the end, the jury found Glenn guilty of attempted murder, and the 47-year-old was given 99 years in prison. The sentence was unusually high because he was a two-time offender. 
Members of Glenn's congregation were outraged by the ruling. Some followers publicly stated that he was innocent, and at least one claimed Darlene had tried killing him. Several members came forward to say Darlene had openly spoken about wanting him dead. But still, Glenn's mission stayed alive for a time. A visiting preacher that Glenn knew, and one of his most loyal congregants, took over running the Church of Jesus with signs following after he went to prison. However, things were never quite the same without their leader. The church was shuttered for good sometime in 1992. Since then, seekers of all sorts have come to visit the place where it all started, Sand Mountain. As they look out at the rolling hills and open fields, perhaps they feel the power of the Holy Ghost coursing through them. The tale of Glenn Summerford is folklore in the Scottsboro community. Local children grow up hearing about the preacher who tried to kill his wife with a rattlesnake. To many, it's a wild story that's far removed from the realities of everyday life. But for those who knew Glenn and Darlene, it's a chilling reminder. Sometimes finding God isn't enough to rid a man of his demons. Thanks again for tuning into this special episode of Cults. Next week, we'll leave the Appalachian Mountains behind and head north. The third stop of our summer road trip is Benton Harbor, Michigan. There, a religious group known as the House of David dazzled the town with, of all things, an amusement park and a baseball team. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information about the Church of Jesus with signs following, among the many sources we used, we found The Serpent and the Spirit by Thomas Burton, extremely helpful to our research. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Natalie Pritzowski, edited by Robert Tyler Walker and Tara Wells. Fact-checked by Naomi Barr, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. The Loch Ness Monster. Jack the Ripper. Shakespeare's Lost Play. The British Isles have long been the source for infamous crimes and baffling events. In UK unknown, we cross the pond in search of answers, investigating the UK's most inexplicable mysteries. Follow UK Unknown free and only on Spotify. Catch a new episode every Friday. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.